but you're also trying to get them. So this is to think about what's happening in their pieces. So if you just let them play randomly, go do whatever they want, and then go, oh, what is that? So put dots on the page, and what happens? No. But you look at the piece and say, what happens? We had all these patterns, we had things that repeated. So why don't we try and do this? So once you, this is your little experiment, find a little idea. So maybe the first four notes. And you go, okay, yeah. Well, what does it sound? Would that sound good if it's repeated? Or do you want something different? And then we want to come back to it. So, so I'm trying to structure their, their little pieces, even at the start. I mean, it's you just ask them questions. What do you want? Hi, I'm Ben Capolo, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I spoke with Daniel McFarlane. Daniel McFarlane is the creator of the Supersonics series. Daniel started composing pieces for his own students back in 2006, and since then, he's never looked back. The pieces you'll find on his website are the result of many years of in-the-trenches teaching. All Daniel's pieces have passed the student approval test. If his own students don't like a piece, then it doesn't get published. And we all know that young children can be the harshest critics. In addition to composing, he's also taught students piano, theory, and composition since 1997. Many of these students have gone on to tertiary study and careers in piano performance, composition, music education, and jazz performance. He's conducted workshops on composition and teaching for the Queensland Conservatorium of Music, the Australasian Piano Pedagogy Conference, and for music teachers in Brisbane, Toowoomba, Cairns, Melbourne, Perth, and the Sunshine Coast. He's also educated competitions and examinations across Australia. Daniel currently lives in Brisbane with his wife, Melanie, their two children, Annabelle and Freddie, and his dog, Bella. In this interview, we talked about some of the core features of his method book series, Supersonics. Hope you enjoy. Daniel, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. It's great to be here. I want to start with a question that I'm sure you've answered hundreds of times, but nonetheless is important, and I'm sure many of our, li of our listeners would still be interested in the answer. Can you talk about what inspired you to create Supersonics? Well, the whole composition process for me started really um, because of a need for my students. It was in uh, some around 2007, 2008. I was doing a whole, a whole heap of teaching by this stage. started teaching about 10 years earlier. And I'd had like the usual composition training at university. So how to write a piece in a classical style, baroque style, romantic, hadn't really gone any further with that. And then when I was teaching, this was in the days before the internet really took off. So any music that you had sourced for the students was from the local music store or what you could mail order in. And we just seemed to <laughs> run out of pieces because always I've always believed in a repertoire rich approach for my students and really trying to find the music that engaged with them and made them want to want to practice and play. So I sort of ran out of pieces. And then I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe I'll have a go at writing piece. So I did uh, my first little piece and on some dodgy little um, notes, notation program that I that arrived on a, on a CD wrong, I had to install. And then so my first piece and then printed it out and the first students liked it and another one liked it and thought, oh, okay, and thought, so I tried another one. And then it sort of snowballed my own students from there. So they were going, okay, the expectations, okay, where's where's my new piece this week? Like, oh, okay, so I better keep this up. And because I was teaching over 100 students, 
the wide range of abilities at once. Yeah, so when at my peak, at my peak oh my for God. a very long time, I was had at least a minimum of min student base of over of hundred or so. Whoa! And plus, we had music schools a music school as well. So I mean, it was nearly as I think over five hundred fifty students we had under our banner at the time. So I mean, in terms of <laughs> that was all going quite well, <laughs> and then um, and then. Some of my students started using some of my pieces for exams. And then other teachers, other teachers at the music school that we owned, because we had 20-something on teachers as well, were asking for some of my pieces as well. So we started off, we just had folders of my pieces out behind the front desk. They'd come and find the pieces that they liked and then gave them out to the students. So oh, maybe we should do something a bit more serious. So I start put it in some books and we just started selling the books. And then as and that was obviously local within Australia. And then as the internet started to take off and all the Facebook groups and social media and became um, a thing, um, overseas teachers started asking me about just some of my pieces. And so as well, obviously it's prohibitively expensive, it was and still is, to send things internationally. So it just started emailing pieces across overseas. So people, at this point, they couldn't even automatically um, deliver a PDF. So someone would buy a piece and I have to manually email them a piece. And then, and from that, then we, then we started growing. Then we, then automation tools came available and all these other things. And the business kept on growing and growing. So about 50% in Australia, 50% over in the States. And then, um, after a while, we had enough pieces and people were saying, okay, well, why don't, some of the stuff you do is a little different. Do you have, how do you get through all these pieces? How do you teach them? So I resisted for quite a while, but, and then I thought, okay, well, I better knuckle down and, and do a method, mostly because I thought well, some of the stuff that we're doing here is different to what is actually being offered. So we'll do it there. Not just, we didn't want, I didn't want to just do it just because, I don't know, for the sake of you know, people, keeping some people happy or the sake of having a method, I wanted to do something that was, um, somewhat that was different to what was there and so then we did that and then that was about i think the, i mean the, the super science piano method itself i only got that out in 2018 i think so it's only going for three years so if you look at you know, and it's still an evolving thing obviously we're adding more and more as we go and yeah so that's how we arrived at the point we are today so it, from starting off in 2008, just with pieces for my students, and then um, growing up to now, we have, there's always well, me, and I have two like, full-time assistants who help me, and um, then overseas, other people who come in to help at various points. And yeah, so it's been a quite a bit of a roller coaster ride to get there. <laughs> I'm very interested in this student-centered approach that you're describing for how you compose the pieces, because you were saying you didn't study composition much except at a university, but it was never a focus. And then when you wrote the pieces, it really was for your students, and it took a long time before you thought to market it. So was there any point at which you had any kind of professional mentor or adult's opinion on the pieces, or was it all exclusively sort of led by what the students wanted? Well, it was... I mean, this, when we, in terms of like learning how to compose, so basically I just started list any pieces that I liked before I just go, okay, I like that. 
And then you go, okay, that's, um, I know why I like that. <laughs> and luckily for me, my taste in music seems to co seems to, to hook in with what my students liked. So when I started composing, I started looking at all these pieces that I liked and starting to pull them to pieces and then go, okay, oh, what's happening here? Oh, he, they're, they're doing that. That's happening there. This is what happens. That's how you create that sound. So just taking a, the approach to it, I mean, this is the whole, okay, let's take it to pieces then put it back together again. And then so learning all these different techniques. And, the, and these techniques that I, I mean, I teach them to my students. I've also done other interviews where it's pretty easy to learn how to do some of these things. It's just um, it's just a matter of working out which ones you like and how to put them all together. And then in terms of some of the um, early feedback from the teachers were saying, they'd say, if I have to hear this one, pati- one particular piece one more time, I'm just going to strangle the kid because they're <laughs> playing it. And but the kids, but I can't. The kids just love it. So this is what this is. Um, what I sort of like earworm, one my earworm test still is that um, one one of my assistants in particular, and she's working in the same room. I'm working on a piece, and there's a lull, and she's humming it. I know that's okay. Yep, that's a, that's a good piece. I go, yep, got got you with that one. And also, in terms of what the students like, I'm sort of, before I'd started composing, I had an approach of high low intensity work with my students so the idea being that your high intensity pieces are the ones that they were preparing for exams um, concerts competitions that kind of stuff and also anything where anything where the um it's not just your own personal enjoyment of the piece it's also you have to take in consideration that other people are going to be listening to you play this piece so there's external considerations and then, so we have that set of pieces. And if students just play a piece like that all the time, it's, for me, it can be a guaranteed, um, I don't know, joy of music killer. And so we have those pieces. Um, and then we have these low intensity ones, the ones where I let the students choose the pieces. They can choose how long they want to play it for. Generally, they need to be able to learn the whole thing about I don't know, one to three weeks. So it's quick study sort of stuff. So, and I was, one of my pieces, um, fulfill that need for me because of, they're so patterny and they they really work well. You can go in and learn them quickly, but they sound a lot harder than they actually might be to learn. Mm. So this is why, and the students were getting these sort of these quick wins. They go, okay, I can get this piece. I can understand it. And it gets stuck in my head. Um, for me, that's the sort of, yeah, I mean, the, the trinity of what's happening. Um, easy to understand. Uh, accessible music that is um, friendly to learn and is actually um, catchy. (laughs) Yes, I want to go on this idea of catchy because I know you said uh, you wrote pieces that the person sitting next to you would hum and you wrote pieces that uh, your students liked. And I read on your website, you said that if your students didn't like a piece, it wouldn't get published. So I want to talk about specific things that you feel make melodies catchy and that you found students respond well to because certainly in my experience using your pieces in my studio my students really like your pieces and always talk about them getting stuck in their head so you mentioned a second ago patterns as being kind of one important way of making pieces catchy is there any other kind of specific musical feature you can pinpoint that sort of as you started writing these pieces for your students and hearing student feedback you notice like oh this sort of thing if I do this in my pieces my students like besides patterns 
I mean, there's there's a whole suite of them. There's, I mean, you can have, and you just some pieces of bait can be based around hooks, so either melodic or rhythmic hook. And then you've developed ideas. So if you have a particular rhythm that you think is a catchy little thing, you can start off and you can maintain that rhythm, and then you alter the harmonies. Like so, you use you can use descending um, bass lines and or um, pill notes and things like that against this rhythm. You sorry, you said descending lines and what notes? Pill. Oh, sorry, pedal. Pedal. Oh, pedal. Oh, oh, pedal notes. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So they're, so they're sort of they're like two flip sides of the same coin. So if you have if you have your little um, melodic or rhythmic hook that you're keeping constant, then you can change the bass line. I could just send the bass line. Um, one of the, the prime example of descending bass lines, like the opening um, introduction to the first movement of the Moonlight Sonata. Mm-hmm. If you want to think, if you want it, that's yeah. Moonlight. The first movement itself is a prime example of all these all these tips and tricks you can chuck into a piece to, to make um, people sort of go, oh, geez, that's that sounds that's cool. So the descending bass line. So if you listen, and so if you have something that you keep the same, and then you put a descending bass line with it, it increases like the sense of drama, particularly if you're working from the tonic down to the working somewhere to the dominant, and then. And the other way, and if you look the um in the development section of the Moonlight Sound, you have this this G sharp, this um pedal note that keeps on going, going, going while the, the um harmonies change on top of it. So you can flip it the other way around. Right. Either the bottom could stay the same or the top could stay the same. Yeah. And so and you always know. So I mean if I'm coming to a code of a piece or something, you know, and you can go, okay, yep, yeah, we're gonna put Whack a descending bass line going in here, and then we're going to have a pedal note to prolong the prolong the tension to um, until we get to the end, and then I mean stuff like eventually you just you sort of know what you can take off the shelf as a sort of little right. dramatic device to get something, and and also and chord progressions and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. What about rhythmically? Is there anything that you noticed kind of as you wrote pieces and showed them to students more and trying to make them catchy, what rhythmically you find students respond well to? Um, well, it's either, I think you, you push to the extremes. So a lot of my, some of there's a whole set of pieces I have that are very popular. They're called the Elevate Studies. And you look at them, if you just take the rhythms out of them, it's just one and two and three and four and one and two. It just the rhythms are just endless. Of the, of the same thing. The interest is the layering and what's happening harmonically. So the rhythm is just like no 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 no. It goes like that. And you look at the other extreme. Um, I really like things like the one two three one two three one two. Like the yeah, I've noticed that in some of your pieces. Yes, and all those. So the same thing. I think it's I like either having like the repetition can be sort of hypnotic because it goes back to patterns as you were saying earlier patterns, things that really like dun, 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 dun. and syncopation is another great way to to um, introduce a little bit of um interest and um the sense of movement to what you're doing so if you have a i mean just look at if you want examples of that just listen to um coldplay the best of coldplay i mean they I mean some I mean, some of the pieces somewhat are somewhat harmonically adventurous but i mean most of the interest is generated through what they're doing rhythmically Yes, I was just working with a student on a piece you wrote that I know was inspired by Coldplay. It was from the Pop Method, the second oh, yeah. book. I forget which one it was called, but it was very much three plus three plus two. Yeah. And so even the notes in the song mention Coldplay. Yeah, so three plus three or 
the one, two, three, 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 one, two. So things like dun, 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 these things where you get this sense of movement built into the um, the rhythmic pattern. Yeah. So a lot of what you're describing here about these very heavy syncopations and three plus three plus two and descending bass to some extent, although the example you brought up of Beethoven is not an example of this, but in general, descending bass, these kind of all allude to a kind of pop sensibility, I think, in some way. So I do want to talk a little bit about pop music, which you definitely don't shy away from, um, not just in the pop method of yours that I was describing a second ago, but even in your core method books, I often notice pieces with kind of a pop influence. So um, one use that many teachers, myself included, have found for your compositions is that when you're confronted with a student who really enjoys pop music, the tendency can sometimes be to want to do easy piano arrangements of real pop songs and give that to them. But then what often ends up happening, at least in my experience, is either the arrangement is too simplified from the original that it doesn't really sound like the original, or it's not very idiomatic for students to play because we're taking a melody from something that sounds good vocally. But your pieces are able to be written in a kind of pop style, but written with piano students in mind. So it's conceived at the piano rather than adapted for the piano. So can you talk about some ways that you're able to maintain a pop style without some of the playing issues and rhythmic issues that can arise in arrangements of pop songs? So I'll I'll talk about the reason I did the pop piece of the way I did is that I think there's an awful, there's not really a huge amount of material available for students who just want to, who want to exist somewhere in the middle ground. So what you're saying, mentioning about the easy piano arrangements, that's sort of one extreme. That's, okay, let's just get something written out for you, plonk it in front of you. Okay, that's that's your experience of pop. And then, unfortunately, I mean, there's, because um, pop music can, can get incredibly complex. Yeah. Uh, um, harmonically and rhythmically. So then there's the other extreme where, I think particularly in some of these um, online, you send, you send they go trend to the extremes. It's either okay, just give me give me the score, I'll chuck it in front of it and give it to the kid, and that's it. Or the other extreme is okay, now I need to learn all these skills. We need to transcribe, do this, 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 and so you can play this piece. So you need to we'll come back to this piece in when you've done how many years of some some pretty intense training to be have all these skills. And I'd sort of like to operate in the middle a little bit. So right. we can say to the students, okay, yes, we can make this, we can do what we want with this piece and scale it up or down. So this is why I like to start off with learning how all these different types of chords in a quite a simple um, way. So start major, minor, add inversions, diminish, suspension. So learning learning the language of it. Um, it's, I know it's somewhat unfamiliar for some classical teachers because I know at least in Australia, um, people, when you learn analysis through the music theory courses here, you're taught, okay, this is called one, this is called four, this is called five. This is how you do this um, in a classical like a classical way. So learning four-part harmony, all that kind of stuff. And pops, it doesn't really work for pop music. And... I'd rather teach students the absolute names of the absolute chords to start off with. So they can go, okay, yep, this is a C, this is an A minor, that's an E yeah. flat minor. These are all these things. And then later um, delve into the more in-depth analysis. Mm-hmm. And so if they do, they learn the basic chords and just do right-hand melody, left-hand chords. So this is my, this is for piano students who just want to be able to like play the piece. If I have students who want to be able to sing and play, 
I'll do the same thing, but add in the extra step of, okay, these are the chords of the piece. Now let's make it spread it out between the two hands and create an accompaniment pattern so that you can sing. Mm-hmm. So that's the next step because um, even most students don't have, unless they have a specific person that they're accompanying, they just want to be able to play the piece. They just, if they just play the accompaniment, there's nothing really terribly exciting. There's a melody. You're like, you say, where's the melody? Well, do you, are you going to sing it? So, no, <laughs> that's not my thing. So you need to incorporate the melody. You need to incorporate the harmony because the melody by itself is quite boring anyway. So this is why chords on the left hand, so melody in the right hand, learn all the different types of chords, then learn some different accompanying styles. And then once you've done all that and you go, you know what, pop really is my thing, then we can then we use that as our next jumping off point. But for most students, you can get to that. And then whatever pop music piece they come in and say okay let's have a look at this and then you go okay well these this has got a really interesting introduction um let's get the sheet music so we can learn how to play this interesting um instrumental introduction because that's really cool then we're going to get to the verse okay let's just what what are the chords here okay blah 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 okay how hard or easy do you want to make this left hand okay yeah let's arpeggiate do that yep okay right hand's playing the melody yeah, the, mel- the rhythm's a bit messed up here, isn't it? Yeah, okay, we just have to alter the rhythm a bit. And then, oh, this next bit here, this um, next uh, in, um, interlude or whatever, is a bit interesting. Let's see what's happening. Read the sheet music for that bit. And then so we end up having this hybrid version of the piece, which we can scale up. Sometimes we go, you know what, let's just have a super easy left accompaniment through this bit. We know what, let's, let's make it a bit more complex because you like it or you think it needs it. And so... We can just we can get together any pop piece that they like incredibly easily. It's like bang done, easy, with a combination of skills that are quite easily learned, and we don't um, haven't really even touched on like making them transcribe things and or doing complex things, working out Roman numeral chords or anything like that. So it's trying to make it very pragmatic for the kids. So that's. So because that's how I was teaching chords and teaching pop music to them, that's how I, I did all these pop pieces. So I thought, well, if we do it like this, and the pieces, and they sound quite pretty, and some of them, they sound quite effective. So if you just learn three set of pieces, and then at the end of it, you know all your chords, you know a whole heap of different accompanying styles, and you can do whatever you want. It also helps a lot of my, um, my high schools because they have composition assignments to do at school for their school music because they – they know how to do, they know how this harmonic language, they know um, how chord progressions, they know all this stuff. So they can just go and go, oh, yeah, I need to do this. Yep, bang. And then we get onto more complex stuff when we, because you can talk about, you can marry up different modes with different chord progressions and stuff like that. So they really get, can, can compose at like a really, not just beyond adequate, a really good level just on the basis of these, these simple simple knowledge which i think seems to get missed out a little bit most it's mostly because it's something like somewhat somewhat new i mean not that new but i mean it's somewhat new and also it's somewhat alien to how a lot of piano teachers are actually taught right it shows the pedagogical power that using pop has i think a lot of times piano teachers treat pop music the way they treat games and that it's kind of a fun reward like candy at the end and lose kind of the foundational pedagogical different ways that you can use pop, like what you're describing with transcribing the pieces and how that leads to composition. I mean, there's so much you can do with it. 
Um, I want to talk about how some of this would apply in the very early years. I know yep. that you are, I believe, currently working on a primer version of Supersonics, yep. and you uh, have obviously the early method book series. So a lot of what we've talked about today, kind of like descending baselines and patterns and complex transcribing and arrangements right. are things that I presumably are suited for older students, but your pieces are catchy and well-liked by students really of all ages. So can you talk a bit about your approach to writing books that are catered towards very young beginner students? So the primer that I've just started, um, because, well, I, I thought it was necessary, basically. <laughs> um, again, it's something that I took, I took my time trying to write it because I mean, I've had experience with quite a lot of the different um, sort of named approaches. So um, Kodai, Orff, Dale Crows, Gordon, all these ones that have, but, um, and, and they all have their advantages and then, um, their, and then I think they're all particularly use, uh, useful and, particular, and different at times. But then I wanted to put something together that worked for my beginner students. So, um, so that they get an effective technique and they, they it, it functions like, as in priming their mind. So for me, the word primer means you need you're preparing and getting everything ready. So I started. I used the um, the pentatonic scale. So and using um, solfege, do I use solar, um, which is uh, in some mind, some people's minds are slightly controversial. But <laughs> so I start off with just so and me. So your right hand has a finger two on so, your left hand has a finger two on me, and again. Behind that, we've put uh, our usual usual um, set of tricks with the backing tracks and teacher duets, but also um, so building um, outwards from that. So they start with two hands, and there's a lot of singing and signing and clapping. And from the get-go, piece one is both hands. Um, yeah, so yeah, so right to start the first piece, so and me. Mm-hmm. So it ends up being your right hand plays so and la, so G and A. With fingers two and three, your left hand plays uh, mi re do or e d c with two, three, and four. So you don't really get beyond fingers that are your strongest fingers. Even though yeah. they would do exercises for all all your fingers. It's uh, just realized when I started talking about this, it ends up sort of like going down the uh, the rabbit hole of it because I could talk about this for 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 a long time about what's what I think is developmentally appropriate and how, but it, what my idea was at the end of it, we have our have your students who wander in with whatever set of skills. I mean, four, five, six, seven year olds, and then at the end of the primer, the idea they can have they can play their limited note set. They can read and sing and play with really great technique. They've done a whole heap of memory work, going around the piano. They've done glissandos, use the pedal. They also have learned the letter names. I assume this primer book also would use a lot of rope pieces. Yeah, so it's, it works in three levels. So the first level has a sort of um, has a has a different set of notation. So it's instead of being on the stage, it just has boxes, which you put dots in, because every every unit has a composition task, and so easy to start off with this because also trying to work from from sound to sight. So all their pieces are learnt like from from memory and by singing and playing first. Mm. And so the, the idea that notation 
it's, so it's as easy as putting a dot in a box to work out how you can notate your piece. Mm-hmm. And we do that. We have memory, little memory exercises, which are little um, rhymes on action songs and things like that. And they do finger exercises to to develop their um, finger strength, in particular in that final the you know, final joint in each finger. And yeah, a composition task each week. So once they've done that first little book, there's, there's three books in this series. I thought we'd go. I thought we'd start with one, but we got three. <laughs> okay. What would a composition task look like for a preschool or, or a kindergarten or very young primary school student? So we start off, it follows exactly the way the, the, the notes set. So the rhythms that we use are just either note or no note. So it's either you play a note or you have a rest. There's no whole note, held notes. There's nothing beyond that. Um, so if, they, if they're just playing with so and me, they'll just have a score that is just has so, so and me boxes to start off with. And then we'll, but beforehand, we'll sit down and we'll we'll plan out the piece. So they're choosing amongst things that they've already experienced playing wise before they yeah. can choose to use them in the composition. That makes yeah. sense. So, and then we get, but you're also trying to get them. So this is to think about what's happening in their pieces. So if you just let them play randomly, go do whatever they want, and then go, oh, what is that? So they get overwhelmed. Play, what yeah. happens? No, but you look at the piece and say, what happened? We had all these patterns, we had things that repeated. So why don't we try and do this? So once you, this is your little experiment, find a little idea. So maybe the first four notes and you go, okay, yeah. Well, what does it sound? Would that sound good if it's repeated? Or do you want something different? And then we'll come back to it. So, so I'm trying to structure their, their little pieces, even at the start. I mean, it's, you just ask them questions. What do you want? Yeah. And if they say no, then that's fine because you, next time you've got it, you just got to keep on asking them until, and eventually, it's quite amazing how they'll organize their thoughts into something, okay, yeah, I know that it sounds good if I repeat something. It sounds good if I don't jump around it and randomly do stuff. And then they sit there and you see me on the floor, sing it, sing it out together, and you work it out and you go, yeah, you know, that piece you put together is really good. And you go, yeah, I know. No, that makes sense. And I, in my experience, actually, the sort of self-consciousness about composition is something I really only see in my older students. So part of why I like working in some cases with very young students is they're, oh, they have no sort of self-consciousness and are eager to try to make something and compose. So I love that your primer books include composition assignments for these young students. Oh, sorry, I think the trouble with composition is that everyone thinks it should just be this open-ended thing that you just should be able to sit down or and sit down and think or sit an instrument. And then some sort of inspiration should be floating around the room or just settle on you. And then bang, that's some of the, the easiest thing to way to compose is the either self-imposed or um, externally imposed parameters. Always, yeah. Okay, these are the parameters you need to work in. Blah, 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 bang, there you go. And most, pretty well, pretty much any and all kids, if you give them the right, the right stimulus and then the right set of parameters to work within, will come with something creative. And it's not as if, um, and some, I know, some people think that's not, I know that's not, that's not creative enough, but um, that's how my mind works. And even gets, I mean, there's technical limitations that are placed on you by the instrument. So, I mean, it's, there's always going to be some sort of limitations of just how close, how confining those limitations are. Right. And I don't think it feels confining to a kindergartner to think that you can only use. I think that would be exciting. To- it works out like, so by the time they get, and then my second book comes back and half the pieces, all the pieces that in the second book are the same each. 
So they've experienced the use off the stave. Half the pieces now are, are moved directly onto the stave and exactly the same piece. So now they've, they've learned them before, and now they come back and they see it oh, on the score, so they already know the piece. Oh, and then the oh. other half of the pieces, I've taken the piece, doubled the length, but changed something. Ah, so they experience it first, and then later on they see what it looks like <laughs> notation-wise. But then when they're looking at the notation, it's representing something they already know because yeah. they've played the and piece. And also okay. made it so the piece, one piece in the module and the unit is exactly the same. The next one is doubled, but something has been changed. So it's rote, and then that's in that second level. That's when I start introducing the rote pieces, and their composition moves to now. Okay, writing your own notes on the page, and then in the third level, we just work with the same notes. We're on the stave, introduce some letter names, and also introduce a little bit of articulation. So just some staccato and some basic slurring between fingers two and three. So I mean, I'm very happy with it. And especially in terms of creatively, it's really nice for students. Sometimes by the time I get to the third book, the little ones now, I just they just go, okay, do you want to do it now or do you want to do it at home? I'll just go to do it at home. It's fine. And it's really nice for them to see like a little six and seven-year-old um, being able to write their own piece, write their own score. Absolutely. And then come back and no, no look at the front. Okay, now I've got to have three notes in this bar. Per, for a bar or measure in this piece, so I know I've got a four and adding up and doing all these things and, and the piece comes back and sounds good. You go, well, that's that's really what we want. Because I think really composition really should be emphasized at this at the really early stages. That's when it should be emphasized. I don't like because when you get composition, not everyone who plays the piano wants to compose. But it's in the early stages that really um, it's vital to get like a really, really strong relationship between what's going on in the, as in the sounds and around you and the sounds you're producing and the sounds of your head and what's on the instrument is really vital because it helps um, reinforce and strengthen all these bonds, which is what you want. Absolutely. You really, really want to have students to have a great, uh, to, um, to know what the, how, a piece can go from your head to down to the instrument, out to the score, where 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 it all sits right. in a musical space. Yeah, I was did an interview on this podcast with uh, Gerald Simon, another composer, about um, a variety of topics. But we also talked about teaching composition, and he was talking about how this idea that piano lessons should be distinct from composition lessons is a relatively recent phenomenon in music education. And before the 1900s, it was assumed that if you were studying music or taking piano lessons, that improvisation and composition would be a part of it. And it's really only more recently that we've thought for some reason we have to divide them. So I think it's great that your method book is introducing from the get-go the idea that if you're going to play the piano, there should be some composition involved too. Yeah, I think it should be really important to start with. And then you should just be given the opportunities all the way through to delve further into it if you want to. Mm -hmm. Because eventually down the track, you may not want to do it right. anymore. That's fine. But you don't want to not expose them, not give them the opportunities to do that. And then and just not to do it just because they weren't exposed to it. Yeah, it's really the only way to experience music really from the inside out. Uh, before we go, uh, so obviously, as everyone can tell, your series is very thriving. You're coming up with new things. It's obviously been very successful. And what's particularly impressive is that it started in a very grassroots way and that you didn't have any background really in composition or special connection. You just wrote pieces for your students and now have this very big best-selling method book series. I'm sure we have some listeners who are fantasies in their heads or are considering about 
writing a method book themselves. Do you have any advice for someone who might be interested in creating their own method book or their own compositions for piano students? <laughs> well, um, I would suggest, I mean, I would suggest doing the composing first rather than, I mean, you can, obviously you can sit down to a method and um, create it out of like other people's music as well. But um, in terms of creating pieces, um, if you want to do it, I would suggest you know finding a good set of people to test your stuff on. Yeah. And then once you get once you've got your ear in, then then start um, then trying to get it out a bit more widespread. And the business side of that is obviously it's just hard slog. I mean, there's no there's no two ways about it. And so in terms of composing, um, the best thing, the best advice I could give for that is that it really is just um, time spent doing however you do it. So I I like to compose just by sitting at the instrument and just fiddling. Mm -hmm. And then I've got my phone there. And as soon as I, I've come across an idea, they go, hey, I like that. Then I'll record it using the voice memos. Oh, that's true. Even and for then, your advanced, like book five, the more complicated pieces still stem out of sitting down and improvising. Uh, yeah, so most will come from some just a little some little book. And there's in a very, very rare occasion that there's um, a piece nearly comes out fully formed, ready to go. I mean some there's some fairly advanced pieces that will come out like that. They just need a bit of um fine-tuning. Other ones are just some like one of my more popular pieces, um, for higher grades called Down in the Willow Garden, I think had the initial idea for that and then took like nearly three years. Kind of revisiting it occasionally before I worked out um, how to actually to, to develop the ideas, and so uh, once I read, what was it? It's attributed to Seinfeld. I don't think it's actually his idea, He's, but it's, it's the Seinfeld principle for creativity. You know, he just had he had a when he was writing the Seinfeld TV series, he had a, um, a calendar on his desk, and so every day he'd sit down and try and write some more stuff and he'd cross off that day. And then the idea was to just get as many days in a row of doing stuff like that. And if you look at most hmm, successful creative people, they um they don't they're not sitting around the place waiting for some inspiration. They're in there doing it. Mm -hmm. And when I analyze this, when I go back in the stuff, but the ideas, it's amazing. There'll be like there'll be incredibly long period where there's no good ideas. I'm just listening to these voice memos going, well, that's bad, 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 bad. And then suddenly and you just think, why am I sitting here? I've, um, it's officially, it's official. I'm done. No more ideas. The well is run dry. And then suddenly, for some reason, you'll sit down. And then there's one night on my phone there that has uh, that seven pieces originated from ideas wow. that just went virtually one after another. In one night. Whoa. Yeah. It was just like bang, bang, bang. It was just suddenly the, it was build up because I don't, I don't think anything looking all the, the um, recordings around, there's nothing particularly good happening around it. And then it was just like suddenly bang. So had I not been sitting at the piano that day, I would have missed right. that. Had I given in that they um, said, you know what, this is, it's just not happening. So with creativity, I think whichever, whatever way you choose to try and be creative, you just need to, to just trust in the process and keep on doing over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And then the other thing, if it'll, um, to go into the, the method book writing, 
Um, if you want to do that, you probably need to set aside at least a year, one to two years of getting every single other method book and methodology and and getting it all sorted out in your head. And then if you go, okay, you know what, I think I can do something a bit different, then, then have a go at writing it because it's, I don't know, people, if you want to, it is tempting to think that, I mean, it's always tempting to think you're doing something different. <laughs> and then after enough research, you realize, oops, that idea that I thought was so inventive was done in this book, this book, this book. Yep. And also, you, I mean, you teach the student in front of you. If you have a basic skeleton uh, of idea of how you do something, and then you're, you find you're adding this and adding that, I think that's good. You should be doing that. You should, it should never be, I don't really think it should be that you'll find a method that's 100% right for 100% of your kids 100% of the time. There's always going to be, okay, we need to go sideways, we need to skip this, we need to consolidate, we need to add this. And every student is, you're going to need to, every student. So if you find a method that's like, well, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good fit. We're using, and I like, and I understand and um, enjoy the, the general progression, then that's what you should be looking at. So in terms of, you think you're writing a method, um, don't just base on the fact that you have to, you know, you're a creative teacher because you should be a creative teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you really want to do it, go exploring. And then after you've done your year or two of research, and then be prepared just for an absolute wall of work after that. <laughs> yeah. Particularly when you do things like backing tracks, teacher duets, uh, all this kind of stuff. Okay. And then finally, before we go, uh, can you let everybody know where they can learn more about you and stay up to date on everything happening? Um, it's pretty easy. Our website is just supersonicspiano, all one word, dot com. Um, I also have a Facebook group. So you, you search for uh, Supersonics Piano Discussion Group. That's on Facebook and we'll let you into that. Um, otherwise, it's the usual social media. Um, we have pretty much new material coming out every single week. So if you pop by the website or pop by our social media, there'll always be something new to have a look at. And yeah. Perfect. Okay. I just wanted to end off before we go with a little bit of a, a thank you slash anecdote. So a few years ago, uh, this was, I think, probably four or five years ago by this point, I had one student who was basically on the verge of quitting, the parents said, because he felt like the pieces in his books were slow and kind of boring, and he was learning them and getting them fine, but was not excited and was very, again, like right on the verge of quitting. And so I frantically tried to find a new method book and find something fun. And this is how I first learned about your method book. It was suggested to me. Um, and so I tried it and that student is still taking lessons to this day. And I think probably would have quit had I not found Supersonic. So thank you for everything you do. I think I've made it very clear. I'm a big fan of your work. And thanks for coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you. It was wonderful to talk. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.